Hello and welcome to the Veer Vulnerabilis Veer podcast. I'm Adam Glinsky. And I'm Albert Imperato. Where we help men communicate and build empathy. Season two of the Veer Vulnerabilis Veer podcast is sponsored by our good friends at Standard and Strange, where the clothes and the people are anything but ordinary, and the motto is own fewer, better things. All right, Albert, here we go again. We're having some fun. Um, you know, I feel like we've kind of given the weather forecast over the last little bit, and we've gone from snow to rain, and hopefully uh, coming up for some spring here soon. Um, I'm excited to see the the Hudson Valley in bloom, man. So how is it up there? It is, uh, well, overcast at the moment, but just that little tinge of uh, of warmth in the air and a little less of the icy bite. You begin uh, knowing that spring's returning and it's going to be great for all of us. We've all had a very rough past 12 months and uh, I'm I'm pretty psyched. Just being outside changes, changes my mood. Um, and talking about mood, that's going to be what we're going to be talking about today with our very special guest. And I'm, I'm excited too, because we, our special guest also has a Hudson Valley connection. Uh, he's based in Red, Red Hill and, uh, that's pretty close. Red Hook. Sorry about that. Red Hook, uh, which is very close to my place. So maybe he'll be, he'll be telling you, uh, a little bit about his Hudson Valley spring enthusiasm, uh, uh, that he's feeling, but there's no doubt everybody's going to be excited to get the hell outside and, uh, you know, we're, we're in healing mode a little bit, you know, we're beginning to feel the heal coming up, uh, from all the, between the vaccine and, and, and other, other things that are happening. And, uh, wow. When we look back at this, the old adage, you know, what does not kill me makes me stronger. We are going to feel like a whole new people, I hope. And I hope we, we keep the lessons with us, um, that we've learned through really, really difficult times. Absolutely, man. Um, I'm feeling it too. You know, the, the temperature is rising. I feel like hope and excitement and just kind of a, a new chapter is, is going to gonna happen for us because uh, we need it after this last year. Whew, man, <laughs> we need it. <laughs> Speaking right of chapters, we have uh, a doctor, Kenneth Bach is our guest today, and, and he's got a new book. And we're, good, we're affectionately calling this episode Food and Mood. It, the book is about more than about food. Uh, but that's kind of our little, the way you and I have been talking about this, uh, Adam. And, you know, we, uh, you and I always are running ideas for shows by each other. This one caught my eye. Um, I personally often feel that uh, there's always uh, some hidden thing going on uh, in, my, in my body besides the thing that's bothering me. If I've got a headache, I'm like, what's the real cause of this headache? Uh, or if, if I'm anxious, I'm like, oh, it's not really what I think it is. It's probably work. Or maybe it's, I didn't sleep last night. Or I shouldn't really drink a half a bottle of that. Um, so anyway, I saw this, uh, um, a little bit about the book uh, uh, came across my desk. And I was like, um, the book is, is geared towards parents with teens and, and, and adolescents, but it, it really could be a great uh, uh, entry into the idea of talking to our listeners about the, the role that food plays in our lives, but also all of the underlying things that impact our mood and our well-being, because we are, as we'll, as we, uh, we'll discover as we discuss with our guest today, we're complex creatures. We're very resilient. At the same time, our systems are all inter interrelated and they can break down in very complicated ways sometimes. So I'm, I'm really excited. It's our first doctor on the show, our first, I guess you could say, first scientist on the show. And it's a little out of our range, but I think we're going to have some fun with this. And if, at the very least, we're going to get some free medical advice out of this. <laughs> yeah, as uh, the doc is cracking up in the background, but let me give the uh, official intro here. Kenneth Bach, MD, is an internationally recognized pioneer of integrative medicine and the best-selling author of Healing the New Childhood Epidemics, The Road to Immunity, Natural Relief for Your Child's Asthma, and The Germ Survival Guide. He's also an in-demand national and international speaker. Over the course of his 35-year-old career, he has become known for his unique ability to identify and untangle the most complex, multi-system, multi-symptom, medical cases. His world-renowned private practice, Bach Integrative Medicine, is located in Red Hook, New York, in the beautiful Hudson Valley. Dr. Bach, thank you so much for coming on to the show. Welcome. Uh, you're very, yeah, I'm, I'm honored to be here, and you're very welcome. Um, 
know, I, I, I just have the sense you guys are trying to do some good work. And uh, I'd like to, if I can contribute to some really positive messages being out there, I'm happy to do it. Well, that's fantastic. First, we want to just congratulate you. Uh, your book is coming out this week. Um, the book is called Brain Inflamed, Uncovering the Hidden Causes of Anxiety, Depression, and Other Mood Disorders in Adolescents and Teens. Um, just want to, you know, basically say I'm sure lots of the listeners out there um, do have kids and te- in that age or heading into that age or maybe past that age, but uh, we're we're hoping they're going to get a lot out of this, but also people who don't have kids and anyone who wants to talk about how uh, food, how other things impact our mental health that we might not make these connections. And I just want to start by just asking you, I love this phrase of, of into this idea of the integrative uh, medicine uh, as, a, as a concept. Is, is that really new? Isn't all medicine integrative or is this something we're finally getting to the point of understanding? Actually, quite to the contrary. I think uh, many years ago, it was Descartes, I think, when they broke down medicine into compartments, they thought it was getting more and more advanced by by having a gastroenterologist and a neurologist and a rheumatologist, you know, so we kept on break cardiac, we kept on breaking the body up and rather than integrate them, we've gone way the other way to a very, very separatist kind of very specialized niches. And I think integrative medicine for me has been around, I've been doing it really ever since I've been in practice is 37 years now. Um, but I think it's actually taking more hold, more doctors are getting interested in it, um, especially because there's more chronic illness. I mean, the specialty medicines work very, very well for acute illness, There's no question about it. The orthopedist is for fracture is great. But when you have these complex multi-symptom, multi-system disorders, you really need an integrative approach because it's not just one cause, it's, ju- it's not so simplistic. And so you need an approach that kind of puts it all together that an integrative medicine is not just, see, there's a whole misunderstanding of integrative medicine um, where it's thought of as a patchwork of, you know, in the hospital to surgery, you add a little bit of acupuncture, maybe a little massage therapy, and that's called integrative medicine. Not to put down in any way acupuncture and massage therapy because they are all very good and helpful in their realms, but integrative medicine from the way a physician practices it is really a way of looking at complex chronic illness in a way that looks underneath the surface, is not satisfied with just symptom relief, although we want that, but we're looking for root causes. What are the contributing underlying factors? As you were saying in your introduction, the way I would phrase that is what is driving the inflammation? What is driving, you're talking about your anxiety or headache, you're looking at, well, what really is driving this? What's underlying it? It's not just as simplistic as the headache or the anxiety. So that's all. That's, I think, integrative medicine is much more a mindset, a way of approaching problems rather than sometimes how it's looked at as this Chinese uh, menu, a little bit of A, a little bit of B. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. Um, you know, the the mindset of health is is something that I feel is kind of a a turning point. Um, you know, recently there's you know the the whole aspect of it, and whenever you talk about health, and then you know, like you're you're kind of saying all these specialties and all these long uh, Latin words. Originally, it comes from the word wholeness. Um, so we want to add a little bit of wholeness to our overall health, um, and kind of getting into the book a little bit. Um, you said that it, it's, it's a family affair, you know, whenever you speak with um, your patients and, you know, who comes to, to go with you. So not just the individual, but it kind of stems into an entire family system um, to achieve that wholeness and to achieve that health. Uh, can you talk a little bit about how, you know, uh, the family and the support system aids and this kind of new approach to medicine? Well, it's, it's really crucial because one of the things that you're looking at is, and this dates back to my early years in medical school, and I'll talk about that in a second, because I think it's kind of an interesting story, really, and really kind of directed me to where I am in medicine. But um, it's you're looking not only at medical 
we call it etiologies, which really is a big word for causative factors. So it's not only medical or biological causative factors, which is what I'm looking at as underlying a lot of psychological symptoms, but it's also recognizing the importance of psychosocial factors, you know, uh, interfamily dynamics, stresses, because it's not only that stress causes anxiety and other type of psychological symptoms, but stress causes systemic inflammation. And my whole point of the book is that it's important to recognize that sometimes underlying biological and medical factors can manifest with solely psychological or psychiatric symptoms with no other symptoms. It doesn't mean you have to have fatigue or sore joints or sore muscles or a headache. You may just have psych symptoms. And if it's only approached as a psychiatric illness with psych meds and therapy, which are helpful, don't get me wrong, but you miss the underlying medical biological factors that may contribute, i.e. the systemic inflammation, which can relate to this whole gut-brain immune axis. And so you get the, an effect on the gut. It, it allows inflammatory mediators into the circulation. They get up to what we call this thing, it's a little complex, the blood-brain barrier. This is something I'm very interested in. This is something, this is a dynamic cellular network, very tiny capillaries. They're the tiniest one-cell blood vessels that separate the outside of us from the brain because we have to keep toxins away from, you can imagine, brain is so key. We have to keep the toxins away from the brain, and yet we have to allow nutrients and oxygen get into the brain. So it's a very, very complex system with very tight junctions. And there are a lot of things that when they're inflammatory, they actually affect the ability of this blood-brain barrier to be really uh, tight and uh, have all its integrity. And it allows these inflammatory mediators into the brain, causing inflammation, contributing to all kinds of symptoms that can be purely neuropsychiatric, even though there's a physical disruption, i.e. this inflammation. And so part of my job is to figure it out and then also to help with inflammation. And there are many ways we'll probably get into talking about that. But the, the whole key that I like people to know the message, the main message of the book is that there are so many people struggling, and especially with COVID now, we can certainly move to COVID too, because it's even worse now. But you know, you can't imagine the number of adolescents and teens that are on SSRIs, antidepressants, anti-anxiety meds. It's, it is so huge. And that was before COVID. And now we have a year of COVID and think of yourself and this is not only for adolescents and teens, because I, I speak to families, you know, many of them every day. I mean, many. And I'm hearing from every family the stress that this is putting on them. I mean, I got couples, you know, I have wives going, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm 24-7 with my husband, you know, and, and a husband going, oh, you know, this is like, I, I mean, I love her, but it's just too much. And then you have teens, right? Teens, what is the, uh, the number one thing that a teen wants? To be with their friends. And they can't be with their friends. And the number one thing they got to get away from to individuate is their parents. And they're with their parents 24-7. So the, the, the isolation and loneliness that the teens and adolescents and, and everyone else is feeling, I mean, is really adding more and more stress, more and more inflammation, more and more brain inflammation in this vicious kind of cycle. So yes, I hope that's not too long-winded, but that gives you a good sense of it. <laughs> totally fine. Totally fine. I appreciate it. Albert? No, I, the book um, was very powerful. I didn't read it uh, first word to last because both Adam and I have day jobs. And uh, I, you know, re read and prepare for the shows in between, in, in between all, all those duties. But it was very powerful because I have a lot of friends who have children with some of the conditions that you talk about. And you create the sense in the book of urgency of parents coming to you, parents who want more than anything else to alleviate the suffering of their kids, and then finding it so perplexing to get to the bottom of what's causing 
disruptive behavior, anxiety in the kids, all this other stuff. And you introduce these families. And uh, these, these are really, uh, these are very powerful stories because if you can't, as a doctor, un unfurl this knot, if you can't, if you can't unknot this thing, uh, get, getting back to what you guys were talking about before, it's not only the individual, it's the entire family's balance will be thrown off. And I'm just, I'm just wondering like how strong of a, um, motivation, uh, with, with this book, uh, was, like you said, this rise that we're seeing in dis um, uh, disorders, mental, psychological uh, disorders that kids are, are facing today, that, that, I mean, maybe it's even an epidemic. You talk about social media and other things that are factoring into it, but th was there sort of a sense of urgency that this now has become like a really serious uh, cultural m moment for us? And I have to help these parents begin to begin to help themselves in a way. Well, because I see, I see these kids brought in by families. Some of the kids I've seen have been sick for years and unfortunately not diagnosed. And so the medical detective worker that I do allows me to get to the bottom of it. Usually, I, obviously nobody ever say 100% of the time, but I have a pretty good track record. And, but the, the, one of the impetuses for the book is to, to get a message out there so that parents may be able to pursue avenues. It's not to give, they're not to make diagnoses. This book is not there to, to help them make a diagnosis, but it does after every chapter give questions and clues. And I did create something and it's something that I really spent a lot of time with uh, called the mood dysregulation spectrum. And it came from my work with autism spectrum disorders where there is a whole spectrum of autism from high functioning, you call Asperger's where they're socially awkward, but they, you know, they have speech and they, they, they can get along in school and things. And there's the other end of frank autism where, you know, they're either mute, they don't speak, they can be aggressive. And so I see these kids with this whole range of what I call the mood dysregulation spectrum, where it could go from just, you know, milder moodiness and irritability, something that many teenagers have, progressing to anxiety, depression, OCD, panic attacks severe mood swings, even with aggression, and then even psychosis sometimes. So I, you can imagine the stories, and, and, a, and a lot of them are in the book. And these are real, I mean, all the names are changed. We change, you know, locations so that people can't be identified. Obviously, everybody has consented to being in. But, you know, I, I, let's say I'll take a kid who's basically comes to see me, uh, who at age, like, maybe like 14 or so, gets, for some reason, everything changes overnight. Everything changes. And the kid basically regresses behaviorally, goes back to almost being a younger child, starts to stutter, almost loses his ability to communicate, stops interacting with friends, stops interacting with siblings, stops going to school because of intense anxiety and OCD. And, and I see him three years later not having been in school. So actually... Uh, it actually, this was it probably happened at 12 because I see them maybe when they're 14, 15, takes me probably could be months to a couple of years sometimes, get these kids back to school. But all of a sudden, you get this, you change the trajectory of a kid's life and the life of the family because you can only imagine how it is for a mother or father and the siblings when a kid is so, so ill psychologically at least on the outside that it affects everybody i mean it you know i i've had i've had kids who could not be around a, a father and a sibling so that the father and sibling had to move out of the house for two years because the kid could not be with them because the brain was so inflamed and it was all this ocd and uh you know mood dysregulation with aggression so it's when i can restore health to these kids and balance and get them back to being in the families and being in school. Yeah. You not only heal the kids, you heal the families. And that to me is the most gratifying work that I do. Yeah. There's, there's a, um, a real drama in the book. I tell you some of the scenarios where you introduce the, the kid and, and the parents and then the siblings. Uh, I just, I, first of all, I, I, 
did uh, uh, associate them with friends of mine who told me horror stories where they're like, my kid is doing something. And I'm like, wow, I, I see your kid and I don't see any of that behavior. I can't believe that as soon as I leave the apartment, you're witnessing that and how painful uh, that must be. Um, you, a couple of, one of the things that you said that, that I found um, that I wanted to bring up though, is the uniqueness of the times that we live in as, as creating stress for young people. And you said that we need to study uh, uh, the impact uh, the, uh, on anxiety and depression from such things as poor diets, which of course gets us into socioeconomic issues, um, pressure to perform, which I think, you know, we've heard, we've heard that one in, in, in so many families, sense of instability, which gets us also back to uh, economic factors, all kinds of things going on. And certainly during a pandemic. And you also say social media, like, I mean, we really, we've done a massive experiment in a way, right? Giving kids electronic devices. And now it's been not all that long and it's probably not been studied much. Um, what do you think? I mean, should we be scared shitless about the fact that kids grow up with iPads and phones or is it like anything else? It's a good and a bad thing. And, and we just have to have some balance. Another word that we want to, I want to talk about later, but. Balance anyway. is important, but, but just think about it. I mean, you know, I, I have this thing about number one about childhood is that, you know, I really value the fact that we were kids, we go to school, come back and get your homework done. And then we go and play. We played. And I grew up in a lower middle class. I didn't have much money, my parents. So, you know, we didn't, I couldn't, at skiing and tennis, they were rich people's sports for me. So we would do anything with like a, you know, you play stickball with a broomstick. Uh, stickball! Right? Where did you, where did you grow up? In Queens, Bayside, Queens. I'm know. a, I'm a Bronx boy. We play plenty of stickball. Oh, no play. wonder I had you on the show. Now it all <laughs> makes sense. My, my parents lived in the Bronx before they like moved to Queens. They got, and I lived in a, little of these garden apartments in the court, you know, we had a, you know, I mean, literally the, 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 the apartment I grew up in could fit in my living room. And we had, you know, we had one bathroom basically every time, you know, when there's three kids and you're in the bathroom, and so has a what do you do? I said, I got to go now. What do you want from me? <laughs> so, and, you know, and I brought my kids back there to see, because I want to have two kids and I want them to see how I grew up. I mean, the beauty of it was there were so many kids and so many friends that we had, but we played, we just played, we screwed off, we were kids. And nowadays, I think there is such a pressure to perform, especially take New York City. You know, I, I hear stories where these kids, these kids are getting tutored for interviews for preschool, for preschool. And, 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 and you're packing the resume, they're getting piano lessons of three because you wanna have it on the resume for preschool or kindergarten, or it's it's just crazy. And then sports, we used to just play sports. We had leads, we had the De Phillips Athletic League, you know, but there is such a push to perform. And then you go to social media, which has kids on display 24 seven and the selfies and, and the Facebook and every minute you're describing and you're always gonna feel less than. The kids are always feeling less than. They look less than, they're doing less than. And it's, I think it has a lot of negative ramifications. I really do. It's a lot, a lot of stress. So I think that contributes to the stress. And again, you have to remember that stress causes system. This is, these are a lot of literature about this. Stress causes systemic inflammation. Stress is one of the things that affects the, the gut barrier, the integrity of the gut, making it quote leaky, allowing inflammatory mediators creating what we call an imbalanced microbial flora. We call it dysbiosis in the microbiome. And so this whole thing, so the gut-brain connection is very strong. And if, if you ever heard this, around 70 to 75% of the immune system is located beneath the single layer of epithelium in the gut. And there's a reason for that, because the interface between the gut and and the lumen, which is the, uh, it's the outside. Think of what people shovel in their mouths every day. Your, your immune system of the gut has to, in nanoseconds or whatever it is, picosecond, has to be figuring out, is this okay? Do I have to react? Is this good? Is it, you know, and it's, it's amazing it works so well. But the point being is, it's, all, it's, not just, it's not just stress. Stress is a big thing, but there are other things like, uh, you know, uh, infections, 
and medications and uh, even certain peptides like in, 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 in wheat, like gluten and uh, casein in, in dairy. So wheat and, uh, in dairy and gluten can, can be inflammatory to that lining in certain people. So the point being is that, yes, what we're doing in our lives has a great effect on our gut, on our gut immune brain axis, on the blood brain barrier, and then ultimately brain inflammation and psychological symptoms like anxiety, depression, OCD, and stuff like that. And in the simplest terms, inflammation is like a state, like a state of agitation of some sort in the, that the body is, is doing a process of some sort. And it could be immune uh, response. It could be, what, what is the simplest way for the average person to think what inflammation is? Well, an example of inflammation that probably everybody can understand, if you cut yourself and you watch it heal, you see it get uh, kind of reddish around there, you know, or reddish purple as it heals and stuff. And that's because you bring all these white cells there. You want to fight, make sure there's no infection. And then you start the healing and then eventually it, it goes away. That's acute inflammation. That's healthy inflammation. So inflammation is not all bad. We always hear about it as all bad, just like everything else, much more complex. Chronic inflammation is not good. Chronic inflammation is a process where something is triggering inflammation and it doesn't stop and it keeps on going. And so that what happens is it revs up the body's immune system and it produces all these pro-inflammatory mediators that wreak havoc in a lot of other areas. So that's the problem. It's not that inflammation, we need, you know, you, you, you hurt yourself, you get inflammation and that's part of what your body does to try to contain it and try to heal it. So that's a very important distinction. I want to, um, just go, go to a couple of things in the book that I wrote down or, or, uh, highlighted just, just get knowing what our audience is like. And, you know, we try to emphasize uh, on the show, the fact that we all go through similar things, uh, and we we help each other by talking about these these issues. And one of the things that I found um, interesting, amazing, one in five children suffer from a mental health or learning disorder, and eighty percent of chronic mental disorders begin in childhood. Now that I mean that says a lot right there of the idea that a lot of things that then come back later to impact adult lives are things that have been set in motion. When when we're when we're young, so th that that was something I underlined and and uh, thought was important to mention to our uh, to our listeners that understanding how you know we manage the the issues that our children are facing and also understanding the the things that we had to, to, uh, uh, impacting us when we were younger that is going to tell us and give some some clues as to where we are today and how we feel and what our state of health today is. And it's not only, I think that's a very good point. And I think that it's not to be discouraging in the sense like, oh my God, it's a fait complete. I think it just helps to understand. And for those of your audience who are parents, it helps to them to maybe inform them that what happens at a younger age matters. I mean, we really, I hate to say it, we're really finding out that even during pregnancy, stress during pregnancy has implications later on as well. And some of it is mediated by the microbiome. You know, the microbiome is that all your, the bacteria in, in your intestines, and you want to have a good normal intestinal milieu, you know, a, a, a balanced microbial flora, so to speak. And one of the things I speak about, so the, the microbiome is probably established by the first 1,000 days, like maybe the first three years of life, but it's really early on is very, very important. So one of the things... I talk about in relating to childhood, the C-sections. And so the people out there that are listening that are confronted with that, I think if you, if you can avoid a C-section, it is best to do so. If you need a C-section for the health of the mother or the child, obviously, no question. But in, in our country, we have, our, our C-section rate is about 33%. It's much higher. It's probably double a lot of other countries. And for a while, it was a convenience thing. The mother would say, oh, yeah, it's very convenient. I'm willing to have the scars so I can blah, 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 blah. And the doctors liked it because they wouldn't be called at three in the morning. But the problem is, if you think about the microbiome, what you, you, you get 
when you're born vaginally, the, the, the fetus then becoming the infant goes through the birth canal, gets exposed to the mother's vaginal flora, and hopefully establishes, hopefully that's a normal vaginal flora, and hopefully that establishes a good flora in the infant. When you have a C-section, what's the flora that you're exposed to? In the, emergent, in, in the operating room or the skin of some of the people rather than that? So I think it's very important to recognize that that unfortunately, that event I think compromises an infant. And so we actually have is we have an infant and toddler, like a probiotic and a prebiotic that actually, right from the get-go of somebody, uh, of, a, of, a, of a kid being delivered C-section, I want them to be taking good probiotics and prebiotics. And of course, I want them to be breastfed because that gives them the good prebiotics that foster the microbiome. Microbiome is very important for mood. It's very important for mood. I have to say, well, um, I want to just make it really clear to the to our listeners that Maybe hearing all of this said quickly on a podcast is going to give you the impression that this is a, a difficult book to read. It's absolutely not a difficult book to read. It's a really well-written book. And I felt like I was. it was fun for me to read a book about a subject that I wouldn't have picked up on my own. Um, it was fun to read and learn about science, see how many of these concepts I actually remember from my old bio class. I, I loved it. I really enjoyed uh, uh, that, uh, that experience. And it's only nine chapters. It's not like you have, it's not 40 chapters long. It's nine chapters and it's got a great, you know, you introduce the spectrum. That's where you talk a little bit about the mood dysreg uh, dysregulation, uh, spectrum, the immune system. I learned a lot about the immune system, gut feelings. I will say when I have issues with my health, my two things that are weak, three things that are weakest, I feel like a Monty Python skit. The three things that are weakest <laughs> are my skin. I get breakouts, 58 years old. I still get acne. I get stomach distress and I get insomnia. Those are the things that are triggered by probably stress, too much drinking, eating the wrong stuff, whatever. But um, anyway, I was, I was really, as I went down your chapters, I was like gut feelings. I can relate to that. And I think I've got some gut issues there. Um, you talk about, uh, oh, Lyme disease. Now, I I had a little Lyme, a little uh, tick on me uh, about a year ago, and we think we got it out, and I took that quick hit of antibiotics. But of course, every once in a while, I wake up not feeling so good, and I'm like, I have Lyme disease. Oh, no. So can one quick question about Lyme disease, doctor. Can If they figure it out years later, can you get rid of it? Or pretty much if you don't get it, get rid of it right away, you're kind of screwed. Well, you want to get rid of it right away. And I have to be, I hate to say it, but I, I'm not a big believer of the two pill uh, that you take right away. I took one. Oh, no. Yeah. Well, it's just, uh, uh, um, you know, you might have got away lucky and maybe the tick didn't have it. But we, we I see a ton of Lyme because I'm in Dutchess County. You know, I live in Ulster County. I live in uh, just outside of Woodstock, but my office is in Red Hook. So we see a ton of Lyme disease, both from around and people travel because we have an expertise in that. And, you know, we give people an option with tick bites. If I'm going to treat a tick bite, we, we may treat it for three weeks, which is a long time, but we don't ever want it to progress to a later stage. And we get a lot of later stages and we can help them, but it's not always easy. It's sometimes the treatment is long and we have lots of different, in addition to antibiotics, we have herbals and we actually have a special series homeopathics and we have IVs that we use. So yeah, you can help the tick-borne, but the key is to diagnose it. We have in the stories, and that's I, I think it's good that you said about the book because one of the things, the, the uh, not the trick, but the challenge of a book like this is for me to get the knowledge in in my head, which you know obviously I've been doing this a long time, and hopefully I have a lot of knowledge, but to make it understandable to the reader. This book is written for parents, for an eighteen-year-old, for uh, it's, it's not written. I mean, doctors will read it too, trust me, but it's not written for that. It's really written. And I had a, a writer help me because to make it simple and the stories that we tell, I think I do. I, I'm, I, I have to say the one thing is when you write a book for anybody out there who's writing a book, by the time you get to the fourth edit, you know, it comes back and forth and everything. It's like, you can be so sick of it. This book is actually been my most favorite book. And I wasn't even the fourth edit 
I still enjoyed it. So it's like, there's a lot of stories there. So I don't want people to feel threatened. The immune system, this is, uh, this is one thing I've always wanted to do is to be able to break the immune system down easily. And I do that when I lecture. And so that's why I decided to put it in this book. I wanted people, it's very important to understand the immune system if you're going to understand inflammation. So, but to do it in a way that makes it easy and not intimidating for people was, was my goal. I'm glad to hear you say that, actually. Oh, absolutely. I just want to... Um Say first of all, I didn't realize that you're. It's your office that's in Red Hook. You live on the other side of the river. Yes, that's right. But you do know in Red Hook, uh, Flatiron Restaurant. Yes, I do. Yeah. Oh my God, the duck! Do you love that duck dish? It's so <laughs> freaking good. I will like travel for duck. I'm like, I get like, I must have duck. Uh, there you go. You, right, I, and the Brussels sprout salad. Did you have the Brussels sprout salad? No, I I haven't had that there. But oh, I it's so good. To, I might have. To, I might be making that. You know. I, It'll be my next lunch I order from there. Let's sure. just hope they like all these our favorite restaurants in the Hudson Valley survived this disaster. And we're going to meet in Hudson Valley. Maybe we'll even play some tennis. There you go. There you Probably go. Kick my butt because you you actually work out with somebody. You take, you take lessons. Um, to go back <laughs> to the books and the chapters, you have uh, another one that really rang uh, with me was allergies and sensitivities. So many kids have nut allergies. They have this allergy and that allergy. Uh, and I, 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 people really should read the book and then they should, uh, you know, uh, figure out what applies to them. I'm not saying anything overarching here, but I've always had, um, some sort of allergies, seasonal allergies, fine. But two other things I discovered quite on my own was how allergic I am to dust. Like a used bookstore will spit me out in 10 minutes. The dust completely overwhelms me. And the other is, um, um, fragrance, really strong fragrance will make me go crazy. And I'll sit like at the opera. And if someone sitting next to me has really strong perfume and cologne on, I have to leave. I, I, I start completely like losing it. So um, these are some of the chapters people will go down. They'll see these, these symptoms and situations in themselves, in their children. I want to go though, jump to the adult world and, and, and say a word that comes up in a lot of our podcasts and a lot of our DMs uh, and comments from people, the role that alcohol plays in the lives of adults, uh, just based on what you know and what you've written about, what would you tell people are some good guidelines about the, the, how much to worry about alcohol, how much is a reasonable amount of alcohol, what, what do we need to know about alcohol to be more sensible about how we approach it? Well, firstly, alcohol, I hate to say, can be a neurotoxin. So you have to understand that too much alcohol is definitely toxic to the brain. And, but on the other hand, you know, I'm a moderate, you know, and I, you know, though I put people on strict diets when they need to be, and if they're allergic or they're sensitive or they have gluten sensitivity, another big thing. Um, but I'm also a moderate. And I think that, uh, you know, a reasonable amount of alcohol, like a drink, you know, a glass of wine or a drink is fine. And sometimes even one to two, you know, a few times a week, perhaps. Um, but it's when you get way above that, you know, it, it's really a problem. And it can be relaxing. And of course, obviously, I really, I really enjoy a really good red wine. But my favorite is Barolo. I love it. And um, so, you know, there's nothing wrong with having a nice glass of red wine with dinner with your wife or your, or your partner, or your significant other, whatever. And, uh, and I've always been a, a one who really appreciate what they do in France, you know, and it, you have a 14 year old, you know, you, you can, it, you, you try to make it so it's not verboten. You try to realize that healthy drinking can be part of a healthy lifestyle without the excess, you know, without the six beers a night that some guys will get into, which will give them a beer belly and all the other problems. On the other hand, I'm big on protecting so when I give an antibiotic, I protect the gut with probiotics and prebiotics and cobiotics. I, uh, I protect the, the gut with uh, prebiotics that also uh, help to nurture the good bacteria. I protect the liver with herbs that protect the liver. So sometimes when you're drinking alcohol, I would uh, have there's some liver protective nutrients. There's NAC, N-acetylcysteine, there's silymarin, there are various things. So, you know, sometimes you can take that with it. So you can actually have yourself the pleasure of a drink, not excessively. I don't want to promote alcohol, especially if you have a lot of the men that listen that are having alcohol problems. I'm not trying to promote that. I'm trying to promote 
moderate healthy lifestyle, um, recognizing the complications of too much, and also doing sometimes the protective. That's one of the things. I use a lot of nutrients. I take them myself. I use them in patients. So you can, there are things that can actually protect the liver. And we have a liver support formula that really is nice. So you can, you know what I mean? Um, and so, you know, there, everything has a risk benefit ratio. That's how I look at life. That's how I look at how I treat my patients. Um, even with COVID now, right? The COVID vaccination, right? Um, I'm fully vaccinated, so I'm thrilled, right? I'm, I'm, I'm over two weeks past my second vaccination, which is wonderful, right? Because um, it's, it, it, it makes you feel safer. And I, it also, um, uh, it, it, you kind of be almost a little more normalcy to your life in some way, you know, in terms of if you're, you can maybe uh, uh, more safely socialize with another couple who are fully vaccinated perhaps or whatever. So, and, 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 and you're doing your kind, you're doing your share for the, the herd immunity. So, but yet I have patients that think to me, oh, you're vaccinated. You know, I have there's some people who are very anti-vaccination and I say to them, yes, I'm vaccinated, you know, because COVID can kill and COVID can cause long-standing long haulers. And I've seen it and I've seen it not only in people with comorbidities, but I've seen it in younger people in their thirties and forties and fifties. And so, yes, I think everything is a risk benefit. Yes, can a vaccination cause autoimmunity? Yes, it can. And there's always a risk of anything. But I think in life, like you're saying, and you use the word resilience, I'm very, very big on flexibility and resilience. I think they have two hugely important concepts. And uh, I think risk-benefit uh, ratios are something we all have to do in our lives. We have to do it with our kids. We have to do, I came up because we're talking about alcohol. You know, I want to really, I don't want to be supporting people being, uh, you know, excessive alcohol. That's not what I'm saying, but I don't think it's wrong like they do in Europe and we can do here, have a, a glass of red wine with dinner. I don't think that's a bad thing. If, if, if you do it in the context of a healthy diet, like the Mediterranean diet, very healthy diet generally, and can affect mood, just so you know, studies show Mediterranean diets can help depression, as opposed to our American diets full of refined carbohydrates, sugar, sweets, bad fats. So yes, so I hope that kind of helps a little bit. Well, my last name is Imperato. I got to say the Mediterranean diet is something we, we grew up with. So I'm glad I had that in my background, but I, I've stopped buying like potato chips and tortilla chips just because if they're in the closet, I can't stop myself. I have this whatever. Ad Adam, this is your chance now. Free yeah. medical advice. Jump right in. <laughs> I'm, I am giving you the opportunity here. Free medical advice, dude. Uh, I, I would love to jump at the opportunity, but um, I, I have some other questions that, that I'd like to ask. Um, I'm just so curious um, because a big part of this book is, is talking about, you know, family situations and being um, kind of just having like another family in your living room or wherever you're reading this, um, you, you hear some real raw stories of, of people in their lives and what they go through. Um, and with that, you know, parents, kids, you, you have to have some really tough conversations. Um, I'm kind of linking in that, that risk benefit ratio is I think every one of these hard conversations is worth the risk um, because they eventually lead to something else. Um, so whenever you have these, these patients, you know, these families, um, in these really tough uh, situations, what kind of like um, effective communication have you seen work the best? Because I mean, you have to go take people from 10 and beyond down to, you know, a, a reasonable area. So, you know, what in your experience has, has really helped um, with effective communication? So that is an excellent question. And it's something actually, so this is, I love a really good conversation when you circle back to something that we brought back, I brought up with Albert in the sense of something earlier in medical school. So when I was in medical school, um, our first day you go to the cadavers, right? So you break up into groups of four and each have a cadaver, which is a, a dead, it was a live person, a dead, right? And we named ours, it's going to sound weird, but we named ours, everybody gives a name to them. You know, we call ours Annie. Um, um, and you have to cut in to this body. So 
the, the morning we start our dissections, that afternoon they took us and they broke us up into small groups. And we had professors and second year medical students get together and ask us how it felt for us to cut into a body. Now, none of my other friends in medical school had anything like this. And this was all part of this mentor who I discuss in the book in my introduction, George Engel, who is the father of bio, uh, biomedical psychosocial medicine. And we had a whole psychiatric medicine liaison team. It was a very big thing in Rochester where I went to medical school. And subsequently, he taught us the whole thing of the open-ended interview to listen. I was always a good listener. In college, I was always a kid that I used to let, like say, I used to love to rap and relate. You know, I could just be up all night with friends uh, and, you know, whatever. And it was, it was, it was something that I, you know, I really enjoyed. And I was always thought of as a good listener, but he taught more how to do that in the medical context, the open-ended interview where you don't just interject. Like, unfortunately, now you go to see a doctor, you have seven minutes, the doctor's going to ask you a few questions. He wants to get to a diagnosis, he or she wants to get to a diagnosis so they can give you a medicine and move to the next patient. I'm not putting them down, but that's our system, basically, unfortunately. So I learned this, this whole thing of the open-ended interview and, and, and looking for clues, looking for clues, letting the patient tell you what's happening, because 80% or 90% of it is in the patient's history. They'll tell you what's going on if you listen. And I have, so that was honed way back. That was started, you know, I started probably earlier in, in college because that's just how kind of I am, but it was honed in medical school from the first days. And I really thank George Engel for, uh, for really helping me with that. And I really think it has led me to this career of being a medical detective because listening is so important. And I have tissues on my desk, on the side of my desk where the, the patient sits. Because it's it's not unusual to have a mother or father, uh, maybe more so mothers, because fathers may be le less expressive, and I'm not putting them down, but you know, in terms of, you know, start to cry because oh my god, it's the first time somebody's listening to my story and not thinking I'm crazy or or what have you, or or when I'm going through all the past records, they're going, you're actually looking at the records. I said, yeah, I need to know these details. I'm very these details help me get to where I need to go to help your child and open the family. And so I think part of it is that, and part of it is the communication with the, the team. I've really learned how I, you know, I'm, you know I, I'm proud of it that I've, I think I've really developed the skill of how to reach the teens, not always, but, but there's a way of being with them that doesn't alienate them, that allows them to be, ornery or, you know, moody or sitting in their chair with the headphones on and like, you know, you know, yeah, uh, yeah, okay. Uh, uh. You know, but, but I try to, I try to reach them in some way. If it's a, if it's boys, potentially I can reach them with basketball because I, I have a, I have kids and my, I have a son and a daughter. Uh, and um, both of them are incredible kids. My son was the athlete of the two. So I used to, you know, coach when I was younger and he was younger and, and soccer and basketball, and he was quite an athlete. And so I can talk to them about certain things if they, if they're into basketball, Hey, can you go left? Which means, can you dribble with your left hand and go to the hole? And just by being able to talk like that, you break them down. So if they're just sitting there, all of a sudden you're reaching them. And um, I think it's important for doctors to get off their the high haunch of of the doctor and, and kind of almost get down. When I have an autistic kid, I'll get down on the floor with an autistic kid and look them right in the eyes, even though they don't want to look at me because they don't, they haven't, and, and maybe pick up a toy they're playing with. So the point being, or even acknowledge like to a kid, you know, a teenager, I know you don't want to be here. Why do you think you're here? My mother brought me. Okay, well, why'd she bring you, you know? And then you get to, you know, maybe, and as I say in the book, you know, maybe it's acne. I say, would you like me to help you with the acne? Maybe I can help you. Wouldn't that be great? So you don't have to deal with that with the girls or a, a girl, the same thing with the boys. And so the point being is if you can get something you can relate to the kids with, uh, I think it's important rather than being this white-coated, you know, barrier and stuff. And I think that is a huge thing. And and it's not just that. It's with It's with parents or adults, because I see adults as well, and especially with men, you know, this story, this is about for men and communication. You know, a lot of times the men that come to see me are brought by their wives. 
the men just don't want to deal with the vulnerability of coming to a doctor and saying, I got a problem. And so I'm very open about that. Why are you here? Uh, you know, oh, your wife brought you. Okay, what's, you know, what can I do? What, you know, what is, and, you know, I, I think I have a way of, uh, of, of relating to them, making it be it's okay, you know, not having them be defensive, trying to get through it. And if you can do that and then just start them on certain things that actually help them to feel better, frequently in my practice, it's the women, not always, the women drive it. The men are sometimes, I don't want to be sexist about it, but sometimes the, one of them has to give up a job. So the men may be working like crazy to, because they're looking for solutions and it sometimes it's outside of insurance and it's, it's money. But, and I have sometimes more skeptical fathers can have skeptical mothers as well, but usually one, I like them both to be on board, but I've had fathers who are skeptical and, you know, and almost like, Oh, I don't want to pay this money and stuff. Once they start seeing their kid get better, they are like, so on board, they're way beyond the mother and they are, it's, it's really profound. And so I'm not trying to be sexist in that. I'm just trying to say that that's somehow the way it, it breaks down sometimes. And then on the other families, I have the fathers who drive it. The fathers are the one that bring the kid in all the time and the fathers are implementing. So it, it does really, really vary. But the point is that I, you talk to them in a way that they can, that you can relate to them and you try to uh, have it be so there's no shame. Shame is a horrible thing. You probably talked about this in the show, I would imagine. Shame is terrible. And guilt. Uh, there's parents who feel a huge amount of guilt when their kid is, is having issues. We must have, I just had one the other day. And this is really a great couple. And the mother said, me and my husband are trying to figure out what we did wrong. Because we have one kid with this and one kid with that. And we're pretty normal, quote. And, and I said, you didn't do anything wrong. It's not, you didn't do anything wrong. And we went through and I figured it out and already the kid's starting to get better. But the point is, I said, please, you don't have to feel any guilt. You didn't do anything wrong. A lot of parents feel like they did wrong. If they had stress, or I have one mother who had stress during pregnancy and stress does impact, unfortunately. And so she was, you know, littered or uh, filled with guilt. I said, you did nothing wrong. You had a, yeah, you had problems with your husband during pregnancy. It happens. You didn't do anything wrong. Let's deal with whatever. And, and that guilt is really, really impacts. And I tell all the parents, just so you know, that you have to heal yourselves. It's like the whole thing on terms of the airplane. I'll never forget when I first heard that thing that said to a parent, if you have a child, put your mask on first before you put the child's. And I was so pissed off. What are you talking about? Of course, I'm going to do my child first. But if you think about it, the reality is, if you start blacking out, you can't help your child. And the same thing with the parents. I tell the parents, we have to help you take care of yourselves. You have to take care of yourselves because if you don't take care of yourself, you can't take care of these kids. And so it gives parents a uh, green light to self-care and to not feel guilty about it. And that is a role that I think I, I, I play frequently and I'm very happy about that. It's very important. Yeah, I'm very happy to hear that. That sounds amazing. I mean, you you said you just give these parents a space to feel and, and you allow them to feel. And for some people, I mean, that just must be such a huge relief. I mean, we're, we're talking serious illnesses here, but they, they can, you know, get, get better once the treatment starts, but allowing the treatment, like you said in the book, getting the buy-in, um, you know, from the patient or from the parents is so important. But what you do is you set up the space to allow them to accept it um, and accept what's going on. And I think that's a, a really hard task to do um, once you're faced with, you know, an illness or a disorder or anything that you can't put your finger on it. it it's stressful. And when you allow that stress and you allow that acceptance to kind of figure it out, I mean, like you said, that gives a, a green light to, um, to healing. Yeah. Yeah. That's, acceptance, that's really, that's really, a very important word because one of the, the first book I ever wrote was 1997 called The Road to Immunity, How to Survive and Thrive in a Toxic World. Actually, it was before its time. It, it's still very relevant. Um, but um, the last chapter, I think it was chapter 13, 
Healing begins with acceptance. And it's one of my favorite chapters, kind of a spiritual chapter as well. And the the thing about it is uh, I tell the story about, I'll never forget her because I haven't seen her for years, but I remember this. She was a, a successful banker, very successful. And then she got chronic fatigue syndrome, right? And she kept on saying, but I used to be able to do this. Oh, but I could, you know, and it was like, I got it, you know, and she couldn't stop until I finally said, listen, you will never get better unless you accept where you are. I'm not talking about resignation. I'm talking about accept where you are so we then can move to where hopefully we can get to what we want to be because acceptance is needed for the healing and then ultimate transformation. And so I, I think it's like accepting life on its terms. Albert, you kind of said that at the beginning. It's accepting life on its terms. Initially, I used to think that was resign. It's not resignation at all. It's a healthy acceptance of life on its terms. This is where we are. We have a teenager like who's got all this stuff, or me and my husband, or, or me and my wife have this stuff. Okay, this is where you are. Now, there may be many different ways to try to heal it. But if you don't accept that this is where you are and you keep on talking about where you were or had been, you, you won't get better. The healing won't happen. Wow. That's powerful, man. That's really powerful. <laughs> <laughs> cannot cannot uh, really say anything better than that was just said. Um, I am just, I mean, first of all, I'm sad to say we're almost on an hour. We, we don't want to go to over an hour because we, we genu genuinely find people like it under an hour for whatever reason. But we, we want to just Kick say it again. <laughs> we we, we want to say... Uh, we want to say that we've been we've been speaking with uh, Kenneth Bach, Dr. Kenneth Bach, the author of Brain Inflamed, uncovering the hidden causes of anxiety, depression, and other mood disorders in adolescents and teens. The book is out this week. I highly recommend it, certainly to parents who have uh, uh, children. But I think it's a good read for anybody to remember that we are one big machine and that we're, we're complicated, but there is a logic to it. And if we take some time, especially when you have doctor, doctor detective around, uh, we're going to maybe have a shot of figuring out these things that, that can dog us. I, I do want to turn it over uh, finally again to you, Dr. Uh, Bach, and just say, uh, is there anything you want to say to the audience in terms about reaching you, about finding out more, any of, the, of that nature? So firstly, uh, my son, who is, works for me now, which is, which is a joy, has created braininflamed.com. So it's braininflamed, one word, all small letters, .com. And there's information, information in there. And there's also the templates. So you can actually download a template and you'll see it with all the different symptoms and you can actually almost do it for yourself or your kid and then use that serially almost to watch as you hopefully get better. And then uh, you can contact me if you need to. Uh, our website is Bach Integrative, B-O-C-K, and then Integrative. This is all one word, I-N-T-E-G-R-A-T-I-V-E.com, BachIntegrative.com. And where it's Bach Integrative Medicine at Red Hook, New York. And if somebody needed to, they can always call at 845-758-0001. And my staff, some of them have been with me my uh, 20, 25, one, one of my staff, my office manager, 30, over 35 years. So uh, they very much are very helpful. They know what we do and they, they're happy to help. I just want to say, you've just been an incredible guest. I was a little bit nervous. Uh, I was like, <laughs> I hope I'm going to be prepared for this because I wanted to get the most out of it. But you are a fa fantastic guest. I hope you're all over the airwaves. Uh, CNN should have you on and have you talking about this. These are great issues. Every Nothing more important to parents than the health and well-being of their kids. Uh, you're, you've got a great personality. I want to talk a little bit about that chapter, that spiritual chapter in that book you mentioned earlier. And here's an on-the-air uh, uh, invitation for dinner at uh, at uh, the Flatiron in uh, Red Hook, and we'll uh, we'll get together and we'll uh, we'll have the duck. We gotta have the duck, and I can't wait to meet, meet you in person on the other side of this pandemic. I am not vaccinated. <laughs> I got you. I got you. <laughs> You're a youngster, though. You're a youngster. <laughs> uh, I don't know about that, Adam. Do you want to? Uh, any closing thoughts or? Uh... Yeah, I just want to um, again recommend this book. I mean, it's it's for parents. It's for friends. Um, it's it's for people that you know 
can, can need a little help figuring out a tough situation. Um, and it's very well written. And uh, I can't thank you enough for, for coming on the show. Thank you so much. My pleasure. This has been another episode of the Veer, Vulnerabilis Veer podcast. I'm Adam Glinsky. I'm Albert Imperato. And I'm Dr. Kenneth Bach. <laughs> thank you for listening. <laughs>